0: Traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. So, I was in the middle of recording our episode on pregnancy and childbirth with Jane Seymour when I found out that I have COVID, which is why I sound like this. And it's also why I wasn't able to finish that episode in time to release it this week. But I really didn't want to leave you hanging, especially since we're celebrating the Exploress' four-year anniversary. Can you believe it? And so I'm releasing this bonus episode that I made just for my patrons. Thank you to them for making it possible, and to everyone who listens and shares the show. I love making the Explores, and I love having you along on the journey. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queen, Pamela. My boss ladies, Tanya, Sarah S., Rebecca, Patricia, Nuria, Natalie, Monique, Michelle, Jessica, Sophie, and Julian, Grace, Elizabeth M., Elizabeth G., Annabelle, and Amy. My adventuresses, Terry, Stephanie, Kelly, Joe Marie, Jessica R., Iris, Helena, Emily, Carlos, and Anna. My warrior queens, Lori, Neve, and Sloan, Kate, and Alexis. My imperial empresses, Katie, Samara, Faye and Whimsy Soapworks, and Bridget, and my lady pharaohs, Lauren, and the fabulous Courtneys. And a very special shout out to Bailey, longtime patron and supporter. You truly are a queen of my heart. Patrons really do help to keep the Explores going. I couldn't make the show without them, and so far, they've helped to keep it ad-free. Patrons also get access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as early access to regular episodes, behind-the-scenes sneak peeks, giveaways, and more, and all for the cost of a cup of coffee a month. To find out more about it, just go to my website. name. That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. We all know the famous quote just as we all know the legendary man who wrote it way back in 1602, the incomparable Mr. William Shakespeare. Hailing from Stratford-upon-Avon, Willie's widely regarded as the most quoted English author of all time. He gave us zingers like to be or not to be, all the world's a stage, and one of my favorites, unsex me here. He coined words and phrases we still use. It's all Greek to me, I haven't slept a wink, the be-all and end-all, and I wear my heart on my sleeve. He was incredibly good at insults, you cream-faced loon, and the guy knew how to write a sexy couplet. His dozens of plays and hundreds of poems are now considered so good that people wonder how he wrote them. Some people even question if he wrote them. Mark Twain and Charles Dickens are two famous writers who have asked the latter question. They are considered anti-Stratfordians, a term for the conspiracy theorists and amateur sleuths who are convinced that someone other than William Shakespeare wrote the works attributed to him. Throughout the centuries, anti-Stratfordians have put forth dozens of possible guesses as to who the real genius behind Shakespeare's quill might have been. Wikipedia's list of Shakespeare authorship candidates contains 87 names, including Queen Elizabeth, Amazing, and King James. Uh, no. This debate has raged for a long time, all the way up to our era, and through it all, people started to ask a rather daring question. Was Shakespeare actually a woman? For today's bonus episode, we'll be doing a deep dive into the wild theories behind the Shakespeare authorship debate. Specifically, we'll meet the real-life woman behind the dark lady Willie wrote about in his sonnets, and find out if maybe she was the one writing those words after all. Let's start here. How did this authorship debate even get started? To be clear, up until the 1800s, most people were debating whether or not Shakespeare's plays were even good. No one thought of him as a genius, and certainly no one was debating whether or not he wrote his own plays. No one had any doubt that Shakespeare the actor from Stratford-upon-Avon and Shakespeare the playwright were one and the same. Until Delia Bacon... Delia was an American writer in the 1850s, and she became obsessed with using literary analysis to search for hidden meanings within the text of Shakespeare's plays. She was convinced that the plays had actually been written by a group of noblemen masquerading behind the pen name William Shakespeare. At the time, most people dismissed her theory. This could also be because Delia herself would have a downward turn in her mental health several years later and, sadly, end up in an asylum. Although, if there's anything this podcast has taught us about being a lady in the 1800s, it's that such a diagnosis was pretty easy to get. Sometimes crazy was the same thing as troublesome. Nonetheless, Delia's work sparked the interest of others, and throughout the late 1800s and early 1900s, trying to prove that William Shakespeare was actually a pseudonym became a fringe hobby amongst a certain set. At the time, the prevailing opinion was that the plays had been written by an educated nobleman. Because, of course, some obscure dude from the lower classes couldn't have done it. Sir Francis Bacon became a favored candidate. Francis had served as King James' Lord Chancellor, and today, he's largely credited with the popularization of the scientific method. So, he's no intellectual slouch. Rather ironically, in order to prove that Bacon was the real mastermind behind Shakespeare, the anti-Stratfordians employed a methodology that was anything but scientific. They scoured Shakespearean works, trying to identify hidden code words to demonstrate that Bacon had placed ciphers in the plays that could be cracked to reveal his own signature. A number of widely mocked books tried to prove this, including Ignatius Donnelly's The Great Cryptogram, Francis Bacon's cipher in the so-called Shakespeare plays. Ignatius believed he had solved the case by successfully uncovering the phrase, Shakist spur never writ a word of them. Okay, Ignatius, I think you need a new hobby. The theories of the anti-Stratfordians have evolved throughout the decades as more and more people have joined the debate, although three candidates have consistently stood the test of time. There's cosmopolitan aristocrat and Cambridge-educated Edward Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, the famous playwright and Cambridge-educated Christopher Marlowe, and, of course, Cambridge-educated lawyer Sir Francis Bacon. Are we seeing a pattern here? So, why are people so unwilling to accept that Shakespeare was, well, Shakespeare? Why has this debate lasted so long? First, it's worth noting that this authorship question emerged during the Romantic period, which was a 19th-century artistic movement that emphasized natural beauty, nostalgia, and emotion. It was at this point that many critics had begun to realize and appreciate the true brilliance of Shakespeare's works— but they couldn't reconcile the ingenuity of his plays with the reality of his personal life. The romantic poets of the 19th century led glamorous lives, and the evidence available about Shakespeare showed that his day-to-day was quite boring by comparison. I mean, how could Shakespeare ever compete with the likes of Lord Byron, who had seemingly slept with half of Europe and had a penchant for drinking wine out of human skulls? Most theorists' arguments as to why Shakespeare must have been a pen name rely on two main points, a lack of historical evidence and his lack of education. Although there is no physical evidence that anyone else wrote the plays, Shakespeare's documentary record does contain gaps. Because of course they do. The 1600s weren't known for meticulous record-keeping. There are many documents that definitely prove a man named William Shakespeare existed. We can also prove this man lived in Stratford-upon-Avon and was an actor, a playwright, and a shareholder in a theater company. However, beyond signatures on the title pages of his plays and the word of his contemporaries, we don't have a lot of other written evidence that he was composing these plays himself. Another odd gap in the historical record involves books, or rather, the lack of them. Shakespeare didn't leave behind a single book in his will despite the fact that his plays contain hundreds of literary references, which theorists find very suspicious. Most scholars simply believe that he gave his books to his son-in-law before he died, but hey, let's look for drama where there is none. Many theorists also find Shakespeare's lack of education quite suspect, and anti-Stratfordians often like to ask, How did a grammar school-educated man born in Stratford acquire the wide-ranging knowledge of languages, literature, and geography on display in the plays? Elitist much? Apparently, they are forgetting that books and maps existed and that Elizabethan grammar school curriculum was no joke. Students actually studied Latin and read classics like Cicero and Virgil. One critic of the anti-Stratfordian says... I do think for some people it is anxiety-producing that the son of a glover with an 8th grade education created the greatest body of work of any writer in human history. This is why most of the other authorship candidates are noblemen with university educations. For some reason, it is really hard for people to believe that a commoner could have written such brilliant plays. Thus, the argument goes, someone far more educated, well-traveled, aristocratic, and, well, overall impressive must have written them. (music) Unsurprisingly, most historians really hate the authorship question, with Shakespeare professor Stephen March saying that the idea that Shakespeare didn't write his plays has roughly the same currency as the faked moon landing does among astronauts. The poor scholarship methods of the theorists, who often cite either incorrect or cherry-picked evidence, have not swayed scholars, who usually have ready answers to the most common anti-Stratfordian arguments. Most of these arguments also rest on the assumption that Shakespeare's works are biographical, which means that the real Shakespeare was either a soldier or a cross-dressing woman, as many of his characters were. This assumption completely misses the whole point of fiction, and how it's written. Writers don't solely depend upon their own experiences. After all, you can write about a court case without being a lawyer. Or, in my case, you can write about magical courtesans without actually being one. Most writers rely heavily on research, observation, speaking to other people, and, of course, imagination. There's no reason to think that Shakespeare didn't do the same. For historians, scholarship begins with the evidence, and there's ample evidence that Shakespeare the actor in Stratford was also Shakespeare the playwright. In fact, the paper trail we have for Shakespeare is more extensive than for most of his peers. There are court and church records, wills, coats of arms, memorial busts, marriage certificates, bills, receipts, cash lists, tombstones, mortgage deeds, newspapers, pamphlets, and letters that catalog Shakespeare's life. For instance, we know that he left his wife his second-best mattress when he died. Thanks, Willie! Additionally, many of his contemporaries refer to Shakespeare as a famous writer, with the first folio being the most obvious example. The first folio was a collection of 36 of Shakespeare's plays published in 1623, seven years after his death. It was produced by Shakespeare's friends and colleagues from his theater company, The Kingsman, who knew him for decades and were clearly in no doubt about who wrote the plays. They even included a portrait of him. Even though there are really no inconsistencies in the historical evidence about Shakespeare's life that prevent academics from following Occam's razor and concluding that Shakespeare was... Shakespeare, this hasn't deterred the anti-Stratfordians. In 1979, British historian A. L. Rouse began a close reading of Shakespeare's sonnets, a collection of 154 poems published together in a quarto in 1609. Some of these sonnets refer to a dark lady who is the object of the narrator's desire. She is described as a temptress with dark hair and eyes, and as their passionate affair goes awry, the narrator eventually begins to use the word dark to refer to her evil nature rather than to her beauty. Rouse hypothesized that the dark lady described in the sonnets was none other than a real woman named Amelia Bassano Lanier, and his hypothesis is now accepted by most scholars as correct. So let's meet Shakespeare's Dark Lady, shall we? Most of what we know about Amelia comes from the diaries of her physician and astrologer Simon Foreman, who she often visited for astrological predictions about her fertility. She was baptized on January 27, 1569. Her father was a musician from Venice, employed in the court of Queen Elizabeth I, although he died when Amelia was only seven. She was raised by her mother on the periphery of court circles, though we have some evidence to suggest she was taken in by Susan Bertie, the Countess of Kent. Was she taken in as a foster, a servant? We don't know, but it seems as if Bertie gave her charge a proper humanist education, including teaching her Latin. She also spent time with the Countess of Cumberland, who would later help fund her literary pursuits. When she was 18 years old, Amelia's mother died, and she soon became the mistress of Lord Hunsdon, Queen Elizabeth's Lord Chamberlain, who was 45 years her senior. Lord Hunsdon was Elizabeth's cousin, and Anne Boleyn's nephew, as a side note... When Amelia became pregnant with his baby in 1592, Lord Hunston decided to celebrate by paying her off and promptly dumping her. What a stand-up guy. To avoid a scandal, she reluctantly married her cousin, Alfonso Lanier, who was a court musician. Shockingly, given these circumstances, Alfonso and Amelia did not have the happiest marriage, and they lost a daughter in 1598, although Amelia's son by Lord Hunston survived to adulthood. But never fear, Amelia had triumphs, too. She went on to publish her own book and briefly ran a school in London before moving closer to her son and his family. Unfortunately, after her husband passed away, she had a hard time making ends meet. She spent the rest of her days in financial hardship, and she died at the ripe old age of 76. Okay, so let's drill down here. Did she ever actually have a torrid affair with Shakespeare? There's no evidence that Amelia even knew him, but she was often at court, and Shakespeare's acting company was frequently invited to perform there, due partly to their patron, Amelia's gross ex, Lord Hunston. In 1594, two years after he dumped Amelia, Lord Hunston became the patron of Shakespeare's acting company, hence their name, the Lord Chamberlain's Men. And when King James I took the throne, the company's name was changed to the king's men, as James liked them so much that he became their official patron. So it's possible that Willie Shakes saw Amelia across the court and found himself opining. But, given what we're about to learn about his dark lady, her attention might have been very much fixed elsewhere. <laughs> Let's talk more about Amelia's book, which she says came to her in a dream, many years before I had any intent to write. It is entitled Salve Deus Rex J. Dorum, which is Latin for Hail God, King of the Jews. Salve is a single volume of poetry, published in 1611, the same year that the King James version of the Bible made its debut. Amelia was the first Englishwoman to print her poetry with the explicit aim of obtaining patronage, making her England's first professional female poet. Although many poets' dedicated work to their patrons, Amelia's is unique in that it was exclusively dedicated to female patrons, including Queen Anne of Denmark, Princess Elizabeth, and the Countesses of Cumberland, Suffolk, Dorset, and Kent. Amelia addressed the volume to all virtuous ladies in general, and asked readers to consider the favorable and best interpretations of famous biblical women. This was a pointedly feminist deviation from the religious writings of the time, which usually only mentioned biblical women in order to wax poetic about their many flaws. It was pretty unusual for a woman in the 1600s to write about a sacred religious subject, but what Amelia did with her book was unheard of. The title poem of Salve is a female-centered version of The Passion of the Christ, made up of 1,840 lines of iambic pentameter. In it, Amelia attacks the vanity of men, contrasts the virtues of women against the vices of men, and justifies women's right to be free of masculine subjugation. The entire text is meant as a Defense of Women as exemplified by Amelia's Apology for Eve, in which she argues that Eve's only fault was loving Adam too much. She goes on to write passionately for women's equality. You came not in the world without our pain. Make that a bar against your cruelty, your fault being greater. Why should you disdain our being your equals free from tyranny? Preach, sister! Although Amelia disguises her words in the language of religious piety, her work is unapologetic, self-assured, and arguably the first feminist publication seen in England. Amelia's book concluded with another interesting poem, entitled The Description of Cookham, which is now considered the earliest known English country house poem. These poems were a popular 17th century genre in which poets would pay favor to a wealthy friend or patron by describing their country house. Although Ben Johnson is usually credited for writing the first country house poem in England, it is clear that Amelia's poem was actually the first to appear in print. So just take a seat, Ben. In the description of Cookham, Amelia details her loving friendship with the Countess of Cumberland and her daughter, and admires the natural beauty of their estate. Oh, how me thought each plant, each flower, each tree, set forth their beauties then to welcome thee. So, Amelia was clearly a writer way ahead of her time, knew how to wrap her mind around iambic pentameter, and she may have been the dark lady Shakespeare was writing about in his sonnets. But some theorists take it a step further and actually believe that Amelia was Shakespeare. Unsurprisingly, the anti-Stratfordians have found numerous references to Amelia Bassano Lanyard's name in Shakespeare's texts, which they take as some sort of secret message that she was actually the author. There is an Emilia in The Comedy of Errors and in Othello, a Bassanius in Titus Andronicus, a Bassanio in The Merchant of Venice, and in The Taming of the Shrew, there are characters named Emilia, Alfonso, her husband's name, and Baptista, her father's name. Additionally, Emilia's life story more closely resembles the events in the plays than does Shakespeare's own. After all, Amelia's relatives were court musicians and the plays contain thousands of musical references. Amelia was Italian and many of the plays are set in Italy and contain allusions to Italian literature. And Amelia was a commoner who spent a lot of time at court and the plays feature accurate portrayals of both lower and upper class society. Some theorists also like to point to All's Well That Ends Well, in which a lowborn girl lives with a dowager countess and a celebrated general named Bertram. Amelia, of course, was taken in by Susan Bertie, the dowager countess of Kent, and the countess had a brother who was also a celebrated general. There's also the fact that a striking number of Shakespeare's plays feature strong female characters who refuse to obey society's rules. Lots of Shakespearean heroines defy their fathers. Eight disguise themselves as men to outwit the patriarchy. Six command armies. And there's a whole lot of gender bending going on. So it makes sense that anti-Stratfordians are convinced that the feminist Amelia was the true author. They believe that a man living in such a patriarchal time period would never have written so many feminist heroines. A 17th century man writing a three-dimensional woman? Impossible! Consider this as well. While most scholars assume that the huge number of 16th-century plays published anonymously were written by men of the period, surely there were some lady authors in the mix. In 1593, Elizabethan literary critic Gabriel Harvey referred to an excellent gentlewoman who had written three sonnets and a comedy. I dare not particularize her description, he wrote, but he had all sorts of praise for her excellent words. So, could Amelia have been the real Shakespeare? All of the above hasn't swayed most scholars, with David Marcus writing, Shakespeare wrote better women characters than his contemporaries because he wrote better characters of every kind than his contemporaries. Most academics reject the Bassano theory, which relies on circumstantial evidence at best. After all, there's no evidence that Amelia ever visited Italy herself or wrote any dramatic works, and her writing style is very different than Shakespeare's. Plus, the first folio was printed in 1623 and tells us that Shakespeare died several years prior, while Amelia lived until 1645. One academic writes that Amelia was a remarkable woman with strong literary and court connections, but it's a big step from that to Shakespeare. It is a tempting fantasy to imagine that one of the most famous literary men in history was actually a lady. But it probably isn't true. And even if Amelia Bassano-Lanyer was Shakespeare's dark lady, she was also a lot of other things that are even more interesting. She was a bold feminist, England's first professional female poet, and a gifted author in her own right. And she deserves to be remembered for just that. Thanks so much for listening. Please tell a friend about the show or rate and review it wherever you listen. You'll find the show notes for this and every episode at my website, theexplorespodcast.com, which includes a full transcript, lots of images, and a list of my sources. You'll also find a link to my Patreon there. You can find me over on Instagram at The Explores Podcast and occasionally on Twitter or Facebook. So much love goes to my research assistant, Carly Quinn, who is a magnificent human being, and I could not have done this episode without her. Much of the music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.